down your head, Tom, do Hang down your head and cry. Hang down your head, Tom, do Pull boy about the tide. I met her on the mountain. There I took her life. Met her on the mountain. Stabbed her with my knife. Hang down your head, Tom. Do Hang down your head and cry. All right, as we return, we have that excellent piece of intro music, uh, the hit from the 1950s by the Kingston Trio. We do this because we sadly note the passing of their lead singer, Bob Shane. Back in the 50s, with their smooth harmonies, close-cropped hair, and preppy clothes, the Kingston Trio offered a wholesome alternative to the rising force of Elvis-led rock and roll. They were led by singer and guitarist Bob Shane. They rocketed to stardom when they took a Civil War-era murder ballad, dismissed by the way as tr- dismissed by traditional folk musicians, by the way, as too commercial, and turned it in, into a new pop craze. In 1959, the Kingston Trio had four albums in the top ten at the same time. They hadn't intended to be folk pioneers. Their name was a nod to Kingston, Jamaica, and they had originally wanted to play Calypso. But after Tom Dooley topped the charts... A guy from Capitol Records gave us a check, said Shane, and said, you're folk singers. He said, we looked at the check and said, yes, we are. He's born in Hilo, Hawaii. The young Shane sang in the school glee club and could often be heard playing the ukulele on the beach. He began performing with Nick Reynolds and Dave Gard while the three were still in college in California. In 1957, they became the Kingston Trio. And they racked up a bunch of hits, including It Was a Very Good Year, later made famous by Frank Sinatra, and Sloop John B., later a Beach Boys hit. And I got to say, I gave it a listen. I was quite shocked to know this. And, uh, you know, I like the the Beach Boys version a lot, but the Kingston Trio also did a very good job. They had another song called 500 Miles, which is also very likable. I, I, I... Pulled that one up and listened to it to remind myself that, no, it's it's not the same song that the Proclaimers later did. If we had more time, we'd probably play excerpts of both today, but but we don't. Maybe in a future show. I do want to note that in pulling out the Proclaimers version, I was reminded of their use of the word havering. When I was at Capital Public Radio many years back, I, I, I inquired with Jeffrey Callison, who is of Scottish extraction, like the Proclaimers, what havering was. As I recall, he, he drew a blank at the question, but, but I was kind of distracted, so I'm not sure. But in case you want to know, and I'm sure you do, if you find yourself in Glasgow or Aberdeen or Edinburgh and someone's havering to you, they are blabbing, talking nonsense. And although the Scots don't strike me as the kind of people prone to that sort of thing, I, I'm sure it happens. All right, since we're doing obituaries, we're going to go for, I think, a record seventh on today's program. And note, the passing of Daniel Arap Moy. When we look around at the world of politics on this show, as, as, as we so often are inclined to do, it, it does bring us generally sadness. But from the, well, it could be worse file, we have Daniel Arap Moy. When I visited Kenya, I noted that the Kenyan president's picture was on the money. 
which is a pretty bold political move, although it's often done, well, at least in tin horn dictatorships. Anyway, noted the obituary of former President Moy. Daniel Arap Moy, a former school teacher who became Kenya's longest-serving president and presided over years of repression and economic turmoil fueled by runaway corruption, has died. He was 95. Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta announced Moy's death. Despite being called a dictator by critics, Moy enjoyed strong support from many Kenyans and was seen as a united figure when he took power after the East African country's founding president, Jomo Kenyatta, I believe grandpa of the current president, died in office in 1978. Some allies of the ailing Kenyatta had tried to change the constitution to prevent Moy, then the vice president, from automatically taking power upon Kenyatta's death. So wary was Moy of any threat during that uncertain period that he fled to his Rift Valley home when he heard of Kenyatta's death, returning only after receiving assurances of his safety. In 1962, Moy's government pushed through Parliament a constitutional amendment that, what do you know, that made Kenya effectively a one-party state. Political activists and others who dared oppose Moy's rule were routinely detained and tortured. The judiciary became an accomplice in the perpetuation of violations, while Parliament was transformed into a puppet controlled by the heavy hand of the executive. That comes from a report by the Truth, Justice, and Reconciliation Commission that assessed his rule. Corruption, especially the illegal allocation of land, became institutionalized, according to the report, while economic power was centralized in the hands of a few. In 1991, Moy yielded to demands for a multi-party state due to internal pressure, including a demonstration in 1991 during which police killed more than 20 people, and external pressure from the West. Multi-party elections in 1992 and 1997 were marred by political and ethnic violence that critics asserted were caused by the state. By the time Moy left power in 2002, corruption had caused Kenya's economy, the most developed in East Africa, to contract. Yeah, sad to note that Kenya is one of those countries that people refer to as kleptocracies. And since we find ourselves taking a bit of a jaunt over to the African continent, how about this item? After initially fleeing to South Africa, the First Lady of Lesotho has turned herself in to face charges that she murdered her predecessor. Maesa Thabani, age 42, is suspected in the 2017 slaying of Lipolelo Thabani, age 80. Lipolelo was undergoing an acrimonious divorce from Thomas Thabani, also age 80, when she was shot dead outside her home just days before her husband's inauguration as Prime Minister. Maesa married the widower two months later, and her reign as First Lady has been fraught with accusations of money laundering and political interference. Thomas Thabane, you know, the guy that became Prime Minister, got questioned in connection with the killing last month after police said communication records showed that someone at the murder scene called his cell phone on the day of the crime. Prime Minister has said he will resign. Well, we'll see. And from the, well, it's a step in the right direction file, we have this. Dateline Moscow. The Russian Orthodox Church wants its priests to quit blessing nuclear bombs. (laughs) Orthodox priests in Russia have long splashed holy water on arms. But in recent years, critics have argued that it is inappropriate to sanctify weapons of mass destruction that kill indiscriminately. Well, they have a point. A church commission was set up to look into the practice, 
and it recommended this week that clerics stop blessing nukes and instead focus on seeking divine protection for soldiers. Under Vladimir Putin, the church has become an important arm of the state and has a close relationship with the military. The armed forces are currently building their own cathedral in a military park outside Moscow. It will be one of the tallest Russian Orthodox churches in the world. I do want to note that a good friend of this program happened to find himself at a, at a Roman Catholic mass about 20 years ago. If you take a look at what was once Yugoslavia, you will note that the piece that today is known as Croatia is Roman Catholic. The piece that is today known as Serbia is Eastern Orthodox. Our friend was in the church when the Croatian-Americans were gathered to hear a talk by someone who'd come over from the old country in order to raise money for arms, arms in what was to become the civil war between Croatia, Serbia, and various other factions. Our friend stood up in the middle of the church and asked, Father, how is it that you, a man of God, can ask that we spend money for arms to kill people? He was lustily booed by the rest of the congregation, left the church, and never went back. Put together by the IMF, the CIA, and the Catholic Church. I don't know enough to comment on that. But I would like to quote from a couple of things I saw. It looks like it was on February 5th. There were two articles uh, several pages apart that may or may not be connected. Here's the article from, like, page A6 versus the one... It came on page one. The one on A6 is generally the more important one. Here it is. I'm quoting, in this case, a reprint from the New York Times. Three years ago, WikiLeaks published thousands of pages of secret documents about how the CIA hacks into overseas targets, revealing its ability to compromise smartphones and turn certain televisions into listening devices. The breach, known as the Vault 7 leak, was the largest disclosure of classified CIA information in the spy agency's history and caused what they described as catastrophic damage to the national security. This week, Joshua Schulte, a 31-year-old computer engineer who worked at the CIA, began trial in federal court in Manhattan to defend against charges that he was the leaker. When the documents went public in March 2017, WikiLeaks, the anti-secrecy organization, said in a statement that the source of the information wanted to raise, quote, policy questions that need to be debated in public, including whether the CIA's hacking capabilities exceeded its mandated powers, unquote. This case has garnered some attention because, according to David Miller, former federal prosecutor in Manhattan and former CIA lawyer, This prosecution is significant. It's not an everyday occurrence that there's a federal criminal trial involving the testimony of multiple current and former CIA employees. Anyway, let's return to the top of the article, shall we? I'll read it again. Three years ago, WikiLeaks published thousands of pages of secret documents about how the CIA hacks into overseas targets, revealing its ability to compromise smartphones and turn certain televisions into listening devices. Well, that made page A6. Here's what was on the front page. Secretive app sparks chaos in the Iowa caucuses. Iowa Democratic Party blames coding issue for failure in reporting results. The smartphone app that the Iowa Democratic Party released to party officials for 
Monday's caucuses was designed to quickly tally results from around the state, speeding the vote counting process for the first presidential contest in the nation. But a coding error in the hastily programmed and secretive app led to an unprecedented breakdown in reporting results and left Democratic voters waking up Tuesday morning with no idea who had won the pivotal caucuses. The article by Casey Tolan in the Bay Area News Group notes there's no indication that the snafu was caused by a cyber attack, but the problems with the app, which was created by a little-known company called Shadow Inc., exemplify the danger of incorporating new and untested technology into the voting process, experts say. Okay, dear listener, do you think these two articles have any relationship to one another? The article then quoted David Jefferson, described as a computer scientist at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, who has advised the National Democratic Party about voting technology issues. He said, quote, You should not deploy a system that hasn't gone through rigorous and scaled testing, and you should not deploy a system whose architecture and technical details are secret, unquote. Ah, come on, don't be such a gloomy Gus, notes the article. The fiasco also raises questions about Acronym, a prominent liberal nonprofit with ties to Silicon Valley that funded Shadow Inc. and has pitched itself as a counterweight to the Trump campaign's digital prowess. Anyway, we've, we've always had some questions about the so-called Iowa caucuses, which are not a direct vote, but a bunch of people huddling together and uh, using God knows what process to decide who they're going to endorse bunch of town meetings, sort of, I guess. But they have affected presidential campaigns. Jimmy Carter did very well back in 1976 in Iowa and all of a sudden became the front runner. But on the other hand, I think we can all recall that back in 1988, when the Reverend Pat Robertson scored really well in Iowa, that this did not lead uh, to his subsequent march to the presidency as the Republican Party nominee. Apparently, when all the votes were counted, Pete Buttigieg slightly edged out Bernie Sanders in Iowa, which prompted a cynical friend of mine to send me the following. This comes from something called thegrayzone.com. The title of the article was, The Spook's Choice. Coup plotters and CIA agents fill Pete Buttigieg's list of national security endorsers. The article opened with the subheadline, Why are so many intelligence veterans throwing their weight behind a young Indiana mayor with such a thin foreign policy resume? Article by Samuel Finkelstein notes that seemingly overnight, the once obscure mayor of Indiana's fourth largest city was vaulted in national prominence with his campaign coffers stuffed with big checks from billionaire benefactors. Some observers raised questions about Pete Buttigieg's intimate relationship with the national security state, after it was revealed that his campaign had paid nearly $600,000 for, quote, security, unquote, to a Blackwater-style military contractor. Buttigieg's new roster of endorsements from former high-ranking CIA officials, regime change architects, and global financiers should raise more questions about the real forces propelling his campaign. Buttigieg has offered Precious few details about his policy plans, and foreign policy is no exception. His campaign website dedicates just five sentences to international affairs, none which offers any substantive details. 
Beyond a seven-month deployment to Afghanistan as a naval reservist in 2010, the 37-year-old mayor has no first-hand foreign policy experience to speak of. Well, that's true, but then neither did a certain New York real estate developer. Not that that's a recommendation for high office. Anyway, this critical piece uh, does go on to say that Buttigieg's lengthy roster of endorsements is loaded with former intelligence operatives, national security hardliners, regime change specialists, and vulture capitalists. Among his most notable endorsers is David S. Cohn, the deputy director of the CIA from 2015 to 2017, and a former Treasury official under George W. Bush. Cohen is regarded as a chief architect of the crippling sanctions that the Obama administration imposed on Iran, Russia, and North Korea, earning him the ignominious nickname of the sanctions guru. Anyway, I'm not going to read from the piece at length. Uh, You can, I'm sure, find it online. Although I sure hate to talk about negative stuff. Come on, you know how hard we look for good news. It's just that, well, here's one story. America has a feral hog problem. A recent briefing by The Week magazine examined the issue and noted that the population of feral hogs in America has exploded to an estimated 6 million across 39 states, with the greatest concentration in the South, particularly Texas. Feral hogs, also known as wild boars, wild pigs, and razorbacks, are prodigious breeders and have few natural predators. And they are voracious, causing $2.5 billion in damage to farms and ecosystems. Like all pigs, the feral variety are omnivores and will devour anything they can tear up with their long snouts and six-inch-long razor-sharp tusks, including gardens, crops, frogs, worms, eggs, and even deer and lambs. They like plants, and and a 50-pig herd, or sounder, can empty whole fields of corn or wheat overnight. The invasive species has spread far and wide largely because it was well adapted to its environment and breeds so rapidly. With, and here's the part I love, with ranchers and hunters making the problem worse by trucking wild hogs into new areas so they can be shot for sport. The article notes that hunting them to control their populations hasn't worked. You'd have to shoot 70% of the feral pig population every year just to keep it static. So think about this. We live in a nation where they're authorizing people to shoot cougars if they take a lamb or a calf. We live in a nation where ranchers have vigorously resisted the reintroduction of wolves into habitats because, well, yeah, they too occasionally take a calf or a lamb. Meanwhile, hogs, which are doing $2.5 billion worth of damage to American crops, are packed up by ranchers and hunters and moved to brand new locations so they can be hunted for sport. Now, it's no secret out in rangelands of the West that the Bureau of Land Management does its best to round up and kill wild horses because, well, they're eating some of the vegetation out there that could go to cattle. And it gets worse. This comes from the LA Times op-ed piece, article by Christopher Ketchum, noting that pinyon and juniper woodlands define much of the western United States, so why is the BLM turning them into mulch? Said Mr. Ketchum, the federal government is overseeing a program of massive deforestation on western public lands. Some 7.4 million acres of pinyon Jupiter forest in the care of the BLM in Nevada, Utah, and southern Idaho are targeted for destruction 
over the next several years. This is an area larger than the state of Vermont. He poses the question, why wipe out millions of acres of thriving pinyon Jupiter trees that are superbly adapted to the heat and drought that climate change will throw at the West? And the answer is to satisfy the demand of the cattle industry for grazing forage on public lands. The BLM couches the deforestation as environmentally friendly. They claim that erasing large swaths of pinyon juniper will cut down on fires. Well, that makes sense. Cut down the trees, they can't burn. And, I love this, create new habitat for the endangered greater sage grouse, a ground-nesting bird whose dwindling numbers in recent years have provoked momentous debates on how to manage public lands. It even claims that destroying pinyon juniper forests will restore them. This is mind-boggling. Notes the op-ed piece, what is certain is that pinyon juniper woodlands are the signal forest of the Colorado Plateau and Great Basin. These are old-growth trees, squat and humble, gnarled with many hundreds of years of survival in the extreme cold and heat of the arid west. The trees are the green blanket of sweet-smelling conifers across the uplands of the high desert, contrasting starkly in color and form with the sagebrush plains in the valleys. Pinions are the source of pine nuts, a staple of indigenous peoples in the region. John Muir traveled across Nevada in 1879, observed that the entire state seems to be pretty evenly divided into mountain ranges covered with nut pines and plains covered with sage. Some pinions today have been dated to the Renaissance. Junipers can live up to 1,600 years. You really do have to ask, is it necessary to bulldoze down large swaths of trees so the cattle industry has more grazing land? <laughs> I've got a bunch of other articles in my left hand related to uh, eco-mismanagement, but I'm just going to have to leave it there. We need a change in the thinking of some of the people in government. But I'm at a stage in life where I don't see that coming down the pike, and I'm pretty unhappy about it. But maybe if enough people can be mobilized. There's a quote we've used in the show on multiple occasions. Unfortunately, I can't put my hand on it at the moment or recall who said it, but they were words to the effect that we should not doubt the ability of a small group, a small cohesive group, to change big things, because throughout history, that's really the only way anything ever gets changed. But I think it's fair to say that we here at Radio Parallax do get a little frustrated when we watch people tune in Trump on television and ask, God, this guy's doing so great. How can anybody want to take him away? Or... Talk to a guy who was describing to me various acid trips he'd taken in the past and and how, well, to this day, he's a prodigious smoker of cannabis. Explain to me how it was that Rush Limbaugh was the guy that really opened his eyes about a lot of what's been going on in this country. You know, it does make me pause as I'm doing now, pour myself a drink as I'm doing now. And force myself to relax in my reclining chair and just say, no, no, all is not lost. We can still reach people, I think. So it is we're going to close today's show with some advice from Blaise Pascal, which I'm quite certain is something that Larry King never did on his radio show. But I still want a brief article on the web I, I do want to cite. They noted that the 17th century philosopher is perhaps best known for Pascal's wager, during which he argued that believing in God was the most pragmatic decision one could make. He also had a knack for psychology. Pascal once set out the most effective way to get someone to change their mind. This is centuries before experimental psychologists began to formally study persuasion. Said Blaise Pascal, when we wish to correct with advantage 
and to show another that he errs, we must notice from what side he views the matter, for on that side it is usually true, and admit that truth to him, but reveal to him the side on which it is false. He is satisfied with that, for he sees that he was not mistaken, that he only failed to see all sides. Now, no one is offended at not seeing everything, but one does not like to be mistaken, and that perhaps from that fact, and that perhaps arises from the fact that man naturally cannot see everything, and that naturally he cannot err in the side he looks at, since the perceptions of our senses are always true. Well, maybe. But Pascal added, people are generally better persuaded by the reasons which they have themselves discovered than by those which have come into the minds of others. The writers of the piece noted that Pascal is suggesting that before disagreeing with someone, first point out the ways in which they're right, and to effectively persuade someone to change their mind, lead them to discover a counterpoint of their own accord. They quote Arthur Markham, psychology professor at the University of Texas at Austin, saying that both these points hold true. He noted, quote, One of the first things you have to do to give someone permission to change their mind is to lower their defenses and prevent them from digging their heels in to the position they already staked out. He says, If I immediately start to tell you all the ways in which you are wrong, there's no incentive for you to cooperate. But if I start by saying, Yeah, you made a couple of really good points here. I think those are important issues. Now you're giving the other party a reason to want to cooperate as part of the exchange. And that gives you a chance to voice your own concerns about the position in a way that allows cooperation. Wise words, Mr. McMillan. We should try to live by them more diligently. You're full of crap. (laughs) Well, we're just about out of time, but I think we're going to recycle the outro music we used in the first segment because it's so damn good. As a college student and later in life, I observed the Cal Aggie marching band striking up that tune on many occasions because, well, it's awfully well suited to be played by a marching band. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett. This has been Radio Parallax. We'll see you next week. <laughs>